Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. We continue going through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're going to be in verses 37 through 44 this morning. And just want to echo something Ben said earlier, encourage you, if you have not done so already, to make sure that your uh, picture is in our pictorial directory. Uh, that is a, just a, a wonderful tool that I'm able to use to, to get to know names and, and faces, and other people in the church are able to utilize that, and you can utilize that. So encourage you to make use of that today and uh, next Sunday to get your picture taken for that. Well, we are in Luke 11. We're in verse 37. If you would please stand with me, if you're able, in honor of God and His Word, as we read together this morning. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you? But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces." Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without even knowing it. May God encourage and strengthen us through his word this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we request this morning that you be with us. Enable us to worship you as we ought. Enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And this morning as we look at this text, a text that deals so closely with our, our hearts, we, we pray that you would make us very sensitive to your leading here and give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us soft hearts that are molded into, the, into what you desire them to be. Pray that you're the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ, would be clearly explained and received this morning. We pray this in His name. Amen. If you want to insult a Christian, I have a suggestion for you. Now, I hope you don't desire to insult a Christian, but if you do desire to have a nice little zinger for a Christian, uh, here's my suggestion. And this works particularly well if you want to insult a theologically conservative evangelical Christian. Uh, take this person that you want to insult and engage in some sort of conversation with them, and then at precisely the right moment, look at them and kind of sadly shake your head and say, wow, you're such a Pharisee. Now, the great thing is you don't even need to know what a Pharisee is. You don't even know, need to know what they've said that's so Pharisaical, but, and they don't need to know. But both you and they will know that they just got dissed Christian style, right? <laughs> you have just called them a Pharisee, the worst of the worst of conservative religiosity. But why is it so insulting to call a person a Pharisee? What's so bad about being a Pharisee? If you'll remember, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, we've talked before about Pharisees. 
Remember we saw as we went earlier in the Gospel of Luke that there were kind of four major religious groups in first century Judaism. On the far left, the most liberal, you had the Herodians. And the Herodians were people who had essentially sold out to Rome. They were the the tax collectors. They were uh, kind of one with the Roman government. They were very liberal in terms of Jewish life, first century Judaism. Slightly less liberal, to the right of the Herodians, you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were part of the religious elite. They were kind of in charge of access to the temple. They were theologically liberal. They denied some of the important concepts of the Jewish faith, like the resurrection. Those were the Sadducees. Then all the way over to the right, you had a third group, and these were the far-right people of first-century Jewish life. These were the zealots. These guys advocated uh, overthrowing the Roman government. They were the zealots. Jesus had a disciple that was identified with this group. Remember, Simon the zealot. These were the the far-right fringe of Jewish life. And then to the left of the zealots, but to the right of everybody else, were the Pharisees. The Pharisees kind of arose during that intertestamental time, after the conclusion of our Old Testament, but before the New Testament. And the Pharisees viewed themselves as, as separated from the culture around them. They were men who believed that it was important to not become Hellenized, to become part of this, the Greek culture, or the Roman culture. And so they, they separated themselves away from that culture. They took God's word very seriously. And they were those who created these oral laws and traditions, very burdensome regulations that they followed and expected other people to follow as well. This was the group known as the Pharisees. And it's somewhat common in our culture today when a person wishes to criticize kind of a conservative evangelical person to say something like, wow, uh, you take God's word seriously, and the Pharisees took God's word pretty seriously. Uh, You are very concerned about righteousness, and you talk about morality, and the Pharisees were concerned about righteousness and talked a lot about morality. Uh, You have seminaries and schools, and the Pharisees had seminaries and schools. You're concerned about teaching people how to live. The Pharisees were concerned about teaching people how to live. Ergo, therefore, you must be a Pharisee. (laughs) I want us to think very deeply, though. I want us to think very carefully, a little more deeply, about what it means to be a Pharisee in a negative sense. You know, Jesus himself was identified with much of Pharisaical life, but obviously not in the negative sense. He certainly wasn't a Sadducee, he wasn't a Herodian, he wasn't a zealot, but he was called rabbi, teacher. He, he believed that God's word was God's word. Uh, he had conservative moral teachings. He, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's concerned that people live moral, righteous lifestyles. So that wasn't what made a Pharisee bad. What was it that made Pharisees so bad in Jesus' eyes? Why does Jesus condemn the Pharisees? It's not because they're concerned with righteousness. It's not because they believed that the Bible was God's word, that Scripture was God's word. It's not because they took it seriously. What was it 
that Jesus found so objectionable about the Pharisees. I believe that as we look at the text this morning, here in Luke chapter 11, we're going to find something very disturbing. You see, our critics are both right and wrong. They're right to say that we are in danger of being like the Pharisees, but they're, they're wrong in why they think we're like the Pharisees. We're not, wrong, we're not like the Pharisees in a bad sense because we believe the Bible is true. We're not like the Pharisees in a wrong sense because we're concerned with righteousness. No, the problem is far deeper and far more severe than our critics even realize. And what I want you to do this morning with me is ask yourself four questions from this text that we're looking at and ask yourself, am I a Pharisee, as you look at these four questions? And each of these four questions deal with a characteristic that comes from the heart of a Pharisee. Let's look at the first question. The first question is really a foundational question. We'll spend uh, quite a bit of time looking at it. The first question is this. Do I focus do I focus on my external conduct and ignore my need for God's righteousness? Do I focus on my external conduct and ignore my need for God's righteousness? Let's look at the text, verse 37. Verse 37 tells us that Jesus is speaking. He's saying these things, and as he's speaking, a Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner. And we've talked before about dinners in first century Jewish culture. Jesus would have gone into this home invited by this Pharisee, and he would have sat at this table, and there would have been other Pharisees around the table with this this Pharisee that invited him. And the doors would have been open, and the public would have been able to come in, and, and those who weren't actually invited to the dinner could still stand around the corners of the room, the walls of the room, and watch Jesus and the Pharisee and and the other Pharisees engage in a conversation. And so Jesus would have come into the room and sat down, and it says that he sits down, he reclines at the table, and then something happens that astonishes the Pharisee. He's shocked by what takes place, or rather, what doesn't take place. Jesus reclines at table and doesn't wash his hands. There are some things that, as a parent, I frequently say to my children. Uh, Don't put that in your mouth. You need to ask so-and-so to forgive you. Uh, And then also, did you wash your hands? It seems like it's one of the constant things coming out of my mouth. Wash your hands. Remember to wash your hands. Now, I ask my children that because I'm highly concerned about their uh, skills at sanitary living. Um, They're not high sometimes. Uh, That's not, the Pharisee isn't like, whoa, Jesus isn't washing his hands. I'm very concerned about his germs. That's not the Pharisee's concern here. He's concerned about Jesus's ritual purity. The Pharisees, remember I talked about the oral traditions that had arisen during the, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Pharisees are extremely concerned about ritualistic purity. The Pharisees had a a list, a long list of regulations about how a person was to ritually become clean through washing of the hands, through ceremonial washings. There were rules about how much water needed to be used per person. If you had one or two people, it was this much water. Three or four, is this much water. Five, six, it had 
very specific regulations about how much water needed to be used. There were specific regulations about how many times it needed to be poured, how your hands needed to be held and your fingers spread as the water was poured on your hands, and there were rules about where it needed to hit your hand on which pouring in order for you to remain clean. And when in doubt about whether or not your hands were clean or not clean, they weren't. And Jesus comes in, and he sits down at the table, and he doesn't play the game that the Pharisees play in order to be considered ritually pure. It's very intentional on his part. And, by the way, we've talked before about the rules governing both a host and a person who was a guest. Jesus is not following the rules that a guest is supposed to follow when he comes into the home of his host. It's hard to imagine a parallel in our culture, but imagine that you were coming over to someone's house, or let's put it this way, let's imagine you were invited someone over to their house, your house, and you, you uh, open the door and the person comes in and they have muddy boots on. And they don't uh, take off their boots. They just kind of walk into your house. They sit down on the chair at the table, and they plop their muddy feet on the table. They look at you and say, my, what a disgusting house, and you are repulsive, okay? Not a very nice thing for a guest to do. In a sense, that's what Jesus has done here. He's not fulfilled his obligations as a guest in coming into the home of this Pharisee. He hasn't made himself ritually pure as he sits down at the table. And the reason he hasn't done that is because he wants to focus on their need for God's righteousness and not their external conduct. Jesus looks at his host, and he goes on the offensive here. He tells his host, verse 39, the Lord looks at him and says, now you Pharisees, and you can imagine all these guys sitting around the table shocked at what Jesus has done and even more shocked by what he's saying. He says, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You're focused on the external, but you guys, you're full on the inside of greed and wickedness. And then he looks at them and he says, you fools. By the way, that's not considered proper etiquette at a meal. You don't tell your hosts, hey, you guys are a bunch of fools. He says, you fools, didn't he who make the outside make the inside also, but give us alms those things that are, that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Why does Jesus call the Pharisees foolish? What's so foolish about what they're doing? What is foolish about the Pharisee is that he fails to understand his need for God's righteousness. The Pharisee is a fool because he's focused on the external and has ignored the internal the Pharisee is completely unaware of his need for God's righteousness and how God's righteousness can be obtained. This first question is central in understanding the heart of a Pharisee. If you have the heart of a Pharisee, you are focused on external conduct and you are ignorant of your need for God's righteousness. Let me read you some other passages about Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees. 
Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17, Jesus is talking about his relationship to the law and the prophets. And Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He talks about not relaxing even the least of God's commandments. And then he says something astonishing in verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they were too obsessed with righteousness. The problem with the Pharisees is that they had no idea the depth of their need for righteousness. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says this to the Pharisees, Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. The Pharisees consider them, themselves righteousness, righteous and therefore miss their need for God's righteousness. What's worse, they reject God's provision of righteousness. Over and over again, we see them opposed to Jesus Christ and refuse to believe that God's righteousness comes through faith in him. Therefore, they live in abomination in a way that's an abomination to God. Jesus says in Luke 16, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Jesus calls the Pharisees fools here because they don't understand their need for God's righteousness. You and I, course, have the same tendency. When I was in high school, I was uh, asked by kind of a friend of our church to go help her, her brother, who was uh, a home builder, work on this, this kind of parade of homes deal. He had this home that he was building for this showcase, and uh, he was running behind, and so he needed a bunch of people to come in and help them finish the job. And over and over again, I, I saw us just cut crazy corners in order to create a facade of a really nice house. Like, we'd, we'd dig this little hole for a pond, and we'd stick it in there, and the guy's like, look, this isn't going to last, but we just need it to get it look nice for this, for this parade of homes. We'd, like, uh, close doors up that had rooms with nothing finished. There would be light fixtures that weren't attached to any power source. The whole goal was just to make the house look nice. Imagine if I were to build you a home and uh, I, I said, I don't want you to see it. I, I just want to show it to you whenever I give it to you. And you show up one day, and I say, the, the home is complete. Notice this is the most beautiful house on the street. And, and sure enough, you look down the street upon which this home has been placed, and it, all other homes on the street pale in comparison to this beautiful home. And you look, and you see the, the beautiful paint job and the, the spacious windows and, and all sort of the great curtains covering the, what's inside. It's just an amazing structure externally. And then we go inside, and there's nothing there. No walls, no fixtures, no plumbing, nothing. And I say, isn't this a beautiful, all your neighbors are going to be so envious of what a wonderful house you have. What would you say to me? You are a fool. You focused on the external and missed what's most important, that which is on the inside. Jesus, as he's talking here to the Pharisees, says, look, you're, a, you're fools because you have a, a lack of understanding about how God's righteousness can be achieved. You don't understand your need for God's righteousness and how it's obtained. Now, 
That's not a problem that just the Pharisees had, is it? There's a tendency in the human heart to have an obsession with what's on the outside and become so focused with external conduct that we become complacent and forgetful about what's on the inside. We focus on what our children look like. I have kids that I know my, I'm going to focus on my kids and I'm going to, I'm going to put them in a, a great private school. I'm going to put them in a, a, a great uh, uh, public school and, and I'm going to make sure that my kids are the best kids in that public school. I'm going to homeschool my kids. I'm going to, to focus on the way that they look to the world or, or I'm going to focus on the way I look to my friends and, and I'm going to be the one that's always carrying the Bible or I'm going to go to that great church and I'm just going to focus, focus, focus on these things that I'm doing and I'm concerned that I'm not looking good enough and so I'm going to focus on those things that other people see and we're not even mindful. We're blissfully unaware aware of the fact that there's something deep and dark and ugly and sinful going on inside of us. Lots of passages of Scripture address this. Let me read some passages that should send kind of a a chill down your spine. Isaiah chapter 1, God says this through through the prophet Isaiah, he says, what basically, what do I care about your sacrifices? What is it to me, the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who's asked you to come? Who's required of you this trampling of my courts? Can you imagine God saying that to you? Hey, I am so sick of this hymn singing. I'm so sick of your worship service at Bethany Community Church. Why do you keep trampling into the theater? I'm sick of the prayers. I'm sick of the preaching. I'm just tired of it. Why are you bothering me? Can you imagine him saying that? That's what he's saying to these people here. Why? He says, stop bringing me these vain offerings. I can't endure sin and solemn assembly. Your feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm wary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of this external show of religiosity when your hearts are far from me. It sickens me, God says. I'm hiding my eyes from you as you hold out your hands and pray. Amos 5.21, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. The peace of your The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the, listen to this, the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. 
the book of Malachi, God would say, I wish someone would shut the doors to the temple so you couldn't get in here and bug me. God's care is not first for our external conduct. And the heart of a Pharisee begins by not understanding that truth. The heart of the Pharisee is so concerned with what they're doing externally, what other people are seeing, that they're not even aware that their heart is far from God. The other questions that we're going to ask this morning flow from this truth. The second question is this, do I concentrate on minutia and neglect the big things of God? Do I concentrate on minutia and neglect the, the big things of God? Look at verse 42, Jesus says, but woe to you Pharisees, but woe to you, Pharisees. Woe is like this interjection, meaning like uh, disaster or, or grief or, or sorrow upon you. You're in danger. You're, you're, you're pathetic. You can just imagine as Jesus says this, he's, he's just insulted them. He's called them a bunch of fools, and the Pharisees are very taken aback, and he says, woe to you, Pharisees. And the Pharisees look at each other. Is he, is he talking to us? Woe to, woe to us? Disaster, grief, sorrow for us? Oh, Jesus, you don't understand. We're Pharisees. And listen to what he says. Woe to you. Why? Why? Verse 42, you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What were the Pharisees doing? Well, the Pharisees were great tithers. They were wonderful tithers. They would give 10% of everything, and they were so incredibly careful. They would pay attention to everything that they received. If they got some, some mints, they would make sure that every tenth leaf went to God. I mean, they were incredibly careful, and they were proud of their tithing. They looked at their tithing, and they got super jazzed about their tithing. Man, one would say to the other, I am a great giver. And then one would say, I know, me too. We're super duper. And Jesus says, hey, yeah, fantastic. That's what you're doing, but what are you not doing? What's your problem? You're neglecting the big things of God. You're so focused with this minutia trying to, to obey these, these legalistic requirements, that, that you're missing the big things. He says, you neglect justice and you neglect the love of God. Do you know that justice and love of God are linked together in Scripture and that justice is a big, big deal to God? You know, there's two, I want, I want to spend a few moments talking about justice. There are kind of two extremes that people can fall in as they talk about justice. One extreme, as you think about justice, is for a person just to be totally unconcerned with it. You're living as a, a, a well-off, North American, evangelical, you're very comfortable, and so the fact that there's injustice in the world, and the fact that in some ways your actions sometimes contribute to injustice, doesn't particularly bother you. 
The fact that there's injustice in our culture, the fact that there's injustice happening to children and, and widows and uh, the, the uh, disenfranchised, the impoverished throughout the world, not that big of a deal to you. The other extreme, the other extreme that I think exists whenever people talk about justice is to define justice so narrowly for some people, in fact, um, I believe I'm going to mention this in our, our next newsletter. I, I already wrote the article for it, and I wrote it before I started studying this text. It's kind of interesting how these things happen sometimes. But the other extreme is to very narrowly, narrowly define justice. I was talking to one of my friends of mine who's kind of a little bit more progressive, a little more liberal, uh, and we were talking about how to achieve justice. And, and he asked me the question. He was kind of frustrated with some things I was saying. He said, well, how do you achieve, think we should achieve justice? And as he asked the question, I realized why we were having a hard time connecting, because he defined justice strictly in economic terms. In other words, the greatest injustice in the mind of a more progressive or more liberal person, the greatest injustice is poverty. And the liberal thinks, well, if there's inequality, then there's injustice. Or if the person's impoverished, then clearly there's been injustice take place. And, and I believe that, of course, Christians need to focus on poverty, but I don't believe that injustice is strictly defined in economic terms. As believers, God says, don't, you shouldn't be so focused with minutia that you miss the big things. And what does God define as one of the big things? He defines justice as one of the big things that a Christian should focus on. And justice is linked with love of God. Now, here's my question for you. What is justice then? How does Scripture define justice? If I'm going to be a person that's a Pharisee, then I'm not going to be that concerned with justice. I'm going to concentrate on minutia. I'm going to concentrate on how well, am I tithing? I'm going to concentrate on, am I tithing on my uh, insurance and my pre-tax income? I'm going to be focused on minutia. Uh, do I look good when I go to church? Am I wearing the right clothes? I'm going to be focused on minutia. I'm not going to be focused on the big things like justice. What's justice? Let me tell you. In Scripture, we see that God loves justice, and he doesn't define justice strictly in terms of economics. In fact, he believes that justice can take place in the life of a person who's poor. He defines justice in relationship to, to love of God and, here it is, a love for righteousness. A love for righteousness. In Scripture, justice is linked with righteousness. You cannot be concerned about true justice without also being concerned about biblical righteousness. All sorts of passages I could, could read here. Let me read just a couple. All, tons of passages that link justice and righteousness. Uh, 1 Kings 10.9, uh, we, we read that a few weeks ago. The Queen of Sheba says that uh, God loved Israel. He's made you, Solomon, king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Psalm 33.5, God loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 37, 6, he'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Psalm 72, 1 and 2, give your, the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Righteousness, Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. 
Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Isaiah 9.7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If you're going to be a person who has a love for God, you must have a love for justice. As a believer, you must have a desire to see God's justice and righteousness worked out in the lives of people. For those who are most likely to become victims of injustice, the believer must show a special attention and care and concern for. The believer has a passion for the unborn because the believer has a passion for righteousness and justice. The believer has a passion for a legal system that's not corrupt because the believer has a passion for justice and righteousness. The believer, when the believer hears about a condemned criminal who may be innocent, on death row, the believer's heart is moved because a believer has a concern for justice and righteousness. The believer has a concern for, the, for people in lands where they're not able to hear the gospel and are oppressed because the believer loves righteousness and justice. You and I must not be so consumed with minutiae that we're not focused on the big things of God. And here's the irony for the Pharisees. Here's the irony. They're so focused on these little things. And the things that they're focused on, that they believe allow them to have a right standing before God, it's those very things that are blinding them to their own lack of righteousness and their need for God. Do you see the irony there? They're so focused on, on separating out these little mints to make sure that they, every tenth one they're tithing that they're missing the injustice around them. They're missing the big things of God. They're so blinded by their attention to minutia that they miss the big things of God. Now, does that mean that they shouldn't tithe? No, Jesus says you should have done the big things and the small things. But they've failed to focus on the big things of God because they're focused on the minutia. You know what's great about minutia? It's legalism. You know what's great about legalism? With legalism, you can take one or two things and just focus on them and do them. They're easily accomplished. The great thing about being a legalist is you can define the rules that you want to follow, and in your flesh, you can follow them perfectly. The legalist can say it is important to follow the speed limit. Speed limit is essential to righteousness. And then the legalist can just focus on the speed limit and focus on that and not worry about all that other junk they have to worry about, and they can do it. Just set that, uh, that, that, that uh, cruise control to the right, and you're set in righteousness. The legalist can say your shorts need to be a certain length and your skirt needs to be a certain length, and then the legalist can do it. It's so easy. You can do it in your flesh. 
The legalists can say, look, you shouldn't drink alcohol. And that's, to be righteous, that's all they have to do, just not drink alcohol. It's so easy. Legalism is great if you want to be a Pharisee. And you want to ignore your need for God's righteousness to transform you on the inside. And you don't want to focus about the big thing, on the big things of God. The legalist has it very easy. The legalist has it extremely easy. And yet their soul is in deep danger. Am I a Pharisee? Do I focus on my external conduct and ignore my need for God's righteousness on the inside? Do I concentrate on minutia and neglect the, the big things of God? Third question to ask yourself as you think about whether or not you're a Pharisee, do I love the applause of men? Jesus continues chastising the Pharisees here in verse 43. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees! Woe to you, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. What were the Pharisees doing here? The Pharisees received great attention. They were seated in these prominent places in the synagogues. And as the Torah was read, as the law of God was read, the Pharisee could, could sit there in his seat and, and, or could stand in his seat as well, or stand in the, the, the synagogue as well, could, could look with a certain pious look on his face, and everyone would see how deeply moved he was by the reading of the Torah. All could focus on, on him and the, his reaction to the reading of God's word. They could see how he sat in a prominent place and how important he was. Whenever he's in the marketplace, he could receive these long, honorific titles, and the Pharisee could receive the applause of men and think, I have arrived. We all struggle with the applause of men and women, don't we? I was reading a, an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but there's a... Uh, there's a, a, a Twitter thing. There's kind of a, a Twitter page, or I'm not sure what you call it, a Twitterer. Uh, you know, twi tweets are these little short 120-character little things that are sent out over the Internet, and there's a, one person that does a Twitter called the Humble Brag. Two words combined into one, Humble Brag. And basically what a humble brag is is a person making a statement that kind of sounds humble, but really it's them bragging. <laughs> so, for example, the, the one person did this, this uh, statement that became a humble brag, and this person said, uh, don't think that me winning the Oscars has gone to my head. 36 hours later, I'm, I'm uh, helping unclog a toilet. Or the person takes a picture of their mantle place and says, uh, you know, just a nice, quiet night at home, and there's all their Emmys on the top of the, the mantle place. It, it's this attempt to appear humble, but in reality be bragging. And the person who started this uh, term humble brag had a great line. He was asked, uh, why do so many people humble brag? And he, and he responds this way. He says, that is a question I constantly ask myself after reading a really good humble brag. It's people wanting other people to envy them. And this is the line I, I found very insightful. I've realized that people do most things so they can tell other people about it. What's the motivation for most people doing things? Most people do things so they can tell other people about it. It's all validation, he says. It's not just 
celebrities that struggle with this, is it? I was reading, it's Christian culture as well. I was reading Randy Alcorn's article again this week, this past week. I've mentioned it before, but in his article, he talks about uh, ghostwriting among Christian celebrities. A Christian author will not write a book but place his or her name on it with no acknowledgement that anyone else helped them write this book. And so there'll be this book written by a totally different person, but a Christian author, famous pastor, famous conference speaker or whatever will put his or her name on it. And why? Why would they do that? Because we live in a culture, even in our evangelical Christian church culture, we live in a culture that loves celebrities. And people love to receive recognition for the things that they've done or not done. But it's not just celebrities, it's not even just Christian celebrities. You and I struggle with this as well. You and I struggle with this aspect of the heart of the Pharisee. You and I love applause. Let me give you some some signs that you might love applause too much, be motivated by the applause of men and women. Are you upset when people overlook you? Whenever something happens that you've done and other people receive credit for it, either in your work or in your home or in a a friendship, do you find yourself struggling with resentment and anger and bitterness because you haven't received the recognition that you believe you deserve? Do you find yourself craving those public acknowledgments for your accomplishments? Do you find yourself that you do ministry not for God but for other people? Do you find yourself, in fact, making decisions about what types of ministries you'll engage in based on the amount of acknowledgement you'll receive for them? The person who loves the applause of men is motivated to do the things he or she does by the recognition that they'll receive. And when they don't receive the recognition that they believe they deserve, their hearts become bitter and angry. I was talking with a a publisher, a friend of mine who's kind of involved in the publishing industry, and he was, he was talking about uh, how angry authors get sometimes when they don't receive the, the uh, attention they believe the publisher owes them. They believe that their book is just so important and so vital to people's Christians' lives and deserves so much recognition and prominence that, that it should be like on the cover of every uh, publication that this publisher puts out. Do I love the applause of men? Am I so enthralled with myself and my abilities that I want other people to recognize them? That's the heart of a Pharisee, not a heart of righteousness. Final question I want you to think about this morning. Question number four. Do I appear to be alive, but am really spiritually dead? Do I appear to be alive, but am I really spiritually dead? Jesus, the last thing he says here to the Pharisees are very vivid imagery. He says, this is what you guys are like. You're like unmarked graves. And people walk over these unmarked graves without even knowing it. You guys, spiritually, are are like a bunch of dead people. 
And the sad thing is, you're not even dead in a way that people know about it. You're not even dead in a way that you know about it. You're dead in such a way that people are kind of walking all over and not even realizing that you're dead. You may have read this uh, article on, uh, in, in the paper this last week or two weeks. I can't remember, but I, I read an article on, on ABC News entitled, um, entitled Real Life Weekend at Bernie's. And what happened is these, these people found their friend either a, like about to die or already deceased and went around to all these places with their friend uh, partying with this eventually what became a corpse using his credit card, paying for all these drinks, and obviously alcohol was heavily involved in this decision, uh, going around and partying with this dead guy. And people saw them with this dead corpse and didn't even realize, realize that the person was dead. What do people not know about you? Do you kind of have the appearance of a person that's spiritual? You kind of have the appearance of a person who does all the, the church things. You go to the right church functions. You, you go to the right uh, school or you go to the right organization and, and you just look the part of a Christian. Someone puts Christian A up here and then puts you right next to, you look the same. You know the lingo. You know the talk. You look really good. One minor problem. You're a corpse. You're spiritually dead. And you've been so busy trying to make sure that you look good on the outside that even you haven't taken the time to look inside. And as you do, you look inside your heart you look inside and you see anger, you see bitterness, you see a lack of contentment, you see a lack of desire for the things of God. As you look inside your heart, you don't see life, you see death. You see a corpse. The heart of a Pharisee is not that they're too concerned with righteousness. You know, Jesus never condemned the Pharisees. He says, you know what? You guys are just too good. <laughs> you guys really make me uncomfortable because you're too moral. No, Jesus says, there's something profoundly wrong with you because you're hypocrites. You're focused on external conduct and you're completely oblivious to how dead you are and how in need of God's righteousness you are. And that, that played itself out in a myriad of ways. They neglected the big things of God. They loved the applause of men. They were appearing to be alive, but were actually spiritually dead. And maybe that's you this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe there's aspects of the, <coughs> of the Pharisee within your own soul. If that's the case, I have some good news for you. You and I are aware of a God who brings dead things to life. Maybe this morning as you're looking at the condition of your own soul, you're saying, man, God, there are some things in here that are, that are dead and rotting 
and decaying. Let me read two passages that may be very encouraging to you. The first is in Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel says that the hand of the Lord is, is upon him. He brings uh, Ezekiel out in the spirit of the Lord, and he sits him down in the middle of the valley. And remember what the valley is full of? It's full of these dead, these, these dead people, just their, their bones, dry, dusty bones. It says there were very, very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones that are dead and dry live again? And Ezekiel answered, Lord God, Yahweh, you know. And he said, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and to cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so Ezekiel does that, and then the Lord says in verse 11, he says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Maybe that's God's word to you this morning. You look inside your soul and you say, God, I'm like this grave. I look really good on the outside. I'm this, this beautiful person on the outside, but I'm so focused with my outside. As I look inside, all I see is dryness and dust and decay. And God's word to you is God brings life. God makes dead things live. Jeremiah says a similar thing in Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah talks about the new covenant. The Lord declares the, new day, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He says, verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. God is going to bring their hearts of stone and replace them with a heart of, of flesh. Beloved, are we Pharisees? <laughs> we're not Pharisees because we're too concerned with righteousness. We're not Pharisees because we think too highly of God's word. What makes us Pharisees, to the extent that we are, the most frightening parallel are the ways in which we fail to understand our own need for God's righteousness and the hope that he offers us through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. May God give us the ability to see our sin in its full depravity, to seek the joy and the life that's found in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the life that we can have through faith in him. Now, Father, sustain us. 
Show us those things in our lives that need to change. Help us not to be self-righteous, but to pursue the righteousness that's found in you. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.